to the Crux True Survival Stories. I'm your host, Casey McIntosh, joined as always by my co-host and sister and sister, Tessa King. Tessa King. Hello. <laughs> I've missed you. I've missed you too. Today, we'll be covering the story per recommendation by one of our listeners, Cody. Thanks, Cody, for listening and for reaching out to us. Using that lovely email of ours. Yeah, using our email. And I really hope that I do this story justice. So anyway, this is based on the book Lost on a Mountain in Maine, which was written by the survivor himself, Don Fendler. This is the story of a boy who got lost at the age of 12 on Mount Katahdin in Maine in the summer of 1932. He was underprepared and had to fight with everything he had to survive for nine days. His story gripped the nation, the equivalent of going viral in today's terms. Dom Fendler and his family were on summer vacation. It was the summer of 1939 and they were spending time in Newport, Maine. It was a yearly trip from their home in Rye, New York. Don and his father, along with his twin brother, Tom, another brother and two friends planned on climbing the tallest peak in Maine, Mount Katahdin. Mount Katahdin is 5,269 feet tall or 1,606 meters. The mountain is made up of multiple peaks. Baxter Peak is the tallest and is the official northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail. South Peak and Pomola Peak are southeast and east of Baxter Peak, along with the Knife Edge Ridgeline and Hamlin Peak is positioned to the north. Mount Katahdin is adjacent to what is called the 100-mile wilderness, which I think gives you the idea a little bit of how remote it is. On the sides of Katahdin are four glacial, glacial cirques carved into the granite by alpine glaciers. A cirque is an amphitheater-like valley caused by erosion of glaciers. Among some Native Americans, Katahdin was believed to be the home of the storm god Pamola, and thus an area to be avoided. It was a cold day. The wind was blowing and the clouds are swirling all around Don and his friend Henry as they race to the top of the mountain. The mountaintop was within view. Don is cold and shivering. They summited the mountain only to find that the view below is densely filled in with clouds. Bummer. Mm-hmm. As they stand there on the top, they visualized a man to the right of them, who also noted them on the mountain. They looked at each other and waved. Henry decides to wait for the man, who is standing on a rock outcropping near Knife Edge, which is the ridge line. Don can't stand the idea of waiting for this man, which is what Henry wants to do. He has ants in his pants, and he's thinking about his father, who's making his way up the mountain. He has ants in his pants. He's very impatient. I can tell this book was written a while ago. (laughs) He didn't specifically say that. I'm I'm just filling in, you know, I'm reading between the lines, if you will. Gee willikers. But he definitely wasn't one for cold weather. He even mentioned himself. So the thought of standing there waiting for someone to come from the ridgeline up to the top of the mountain is too much for him to bear. Also, he knows his dad is making his way up the mountain just behind him, and his brother Tom is with his dad. So he thinks, I'll just meet them. Don decides to leave 
Henry. He leaves Henry with one of his layers, so his friend will be warm as he waits. Oh, how nice of him, but probably detrimental to himself. His friend doesn't seem to think it's a good idea for Don to leave and head down by himself, but Don is undeterred. He has made up his mind. Henry seems smart. Well, Henry, funny that you say that, Henry's father was a mountain guide, so... You know, Don wasn't at all worried about Henry, but Henry was a little bit concerned about Don. Don starts to descend down a rocky path, and after a short time, he realizes that he's walked off the trail and doesn't know where he is. It's cold, and he starts to worry, but then he's somewhat reassured by the fact that his father is heading up the mountain. He's going to certainly run into him at some point in the very near future. He starts to call out to him, but he gets no reply. The sound of his voice is just... It's like hitting a wall. Nothing comes back to him, and it's just silent. And also, remember that the mountain is surrounded by clouds. So he's in a fog, basically. Yeah, so it's not like everybody can see all around them. And probably it it stunts the travel of sound, I would think. I'm sure you're right. Scientists? Scientists? (laughs) He has this eerie feeling that he's sitting on the edge of a cliff. And part of that might have just been the cloud coverage. He had on a jacket that was fleece-lined, but he was wearing jeans. Or dungarees is what he referred to them as. Yeah. His legs started to get wet because jeans are obviously not waterproof. Cotton is great, except for if it's raining or if it's misting. Right. Or if you're sitting in a cloud. Yeah, you should always have some rain pants and a rain jacket. Duly noted. How common were wearing pants back in these days i don't know who hikes in jeans (laughs) people in 30s (laughs) hey you know what dad's friend glenn hikes in jeans okay wow and whites white you know those boots those work boots well good job glenn but no thanks (laughs) um so anyway he can't sit around it's wet it's cold and he is really probably anxious about the fact that he's realizing that he's not where he should be. He continues to go down, continuously hoping that he'll run into his father. A little while later, Don definitively knew that he was off the trail. He found himself on a plateau, and turns out it's called a tableland, a 40-acre plateau on the mountainside, which I assume is the area we spoke of earlier that was carved by the glacier. Mm-hmm. Remember, there were four the of them. Cirque. Yeah, exactly. He was walking on the top of this pucker bush, which is a dry plant that's so firm when it dries out that it can hold your entire weight. At one point, his leg fell through one of the bushes, and he found himself dangling over a 100-foot drop with jagged rocks at the bottom. He's just, like, hanging in this bush. (laughs) He sat there for a moment, and then he was thankfully able to slowly get a foothold and climb back onto a firm surface. That probably would have been the end of Don if he had fallen. And that wouldn't make a very good story for us to talk about right now. That's true. So he stayed there for a little while feeling relieved, but the gravity, no pun intended, of his situation started settling in. He cried and he ran around a little while and he shouted and he, he was just kind of all over the place. He was freaking out. If I mean, I would be freaking out too. I would be too. Even now, if I was on that circ. I don't don't have to be 12 to (laughs) be at that point. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Just like panic, I think, is Mm -hmm. the best way to describe it. 
After he got some of that panic out, he was able to calm himself down a little bit and started to think about some things he learned as a Boy Scout. Of course, he was getting colder and wetter as the moments passed. He realized he couldn't stay where he was uh, for obvious reasons. It was getting late in the day. And he actually came across another trail that was marked Saddle Trail, which made him uncomfortable. He knew the trail had a bad reputation for being dangerous. He'd heard that it went deep into the woods and it was riddled with loose rock and there was um, talk about landslides, which, I mean, I know that they happen in this area, but I think in other areas they're way more common. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, he knew that that trail could potentially lead him to danger. And so he ultimately decided not to take the trail and he wanted to work at a right angle and cross, cut across to the main trail. Um, but he can, he, uh, he ran into more pucker bush, which sounds like a horrible entity. <laughs> he climbed on it and he crawled under it, even though he said that guides would say that that was impossible. He was like, I got on the ground and crawled under this stuff. A little while later, the clouds opened and he was able to see Moosehead Lake for a second. It was shining in the sun and he got this excitement because he had some point of reference. Did he recognize it? I don't know if he specifically recognized it, but it was shining in the sun below and it just seemed optimistic. Mm-hmm. So he got, you know, all amped up about it and he tried to run, but there were boulders and rocks everywhere. And he was yelling for his dad with no response. And this went on for a while. And finally he saw another sign and it said saddle trail. Of course. It was the same sign he'd seen before. He just ran in a circle. I know. I think part of it is that the clouds make things so difficult to have a perspective of where you are. He was just disoriented. Right. Or, or as people like to say, sometimes disorientated, which is, is my favorite. Disorientated with my <laughs> aunts and my pants. <laughs> um, so anyway, he decides to try to be more deliberate about going downward, and he finally made it to the tree line. He knew he had to find a trail because the undergrowth was so thick. In his book, he described the shrubs as growing as thick as doormats, which is pretty thick. He felt a little reassured to be out of the clouds, though, because it was starting to get to his head. You know, seeing things that weren't there, getting all turned around. Also, it was warmer at the tree line. It was getting dark, however. Don was scratched up, he was tired, and he was wet. He was hoping that the camp was only a few miles down below the trees, and this is what kept him going. The trees got bigger as he descended. He slipped on a rock, and then he sat there for a while, and it began to rain. You know? Great. When things get worse, they just get worse. Sometimes. You mean like when it rains, it pours? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he decided to sleep where he had landed for the night. He's like, this is enough. He found a stream and had a drink of water, and then he bedded down under a tree. He ended up taking his jeans off because they were so wet. I bet they were so heavy, too. Oh, yeah. And I bet jeans were way better quality at that point, which means that they were thicker and more absorbent, (sighs) if I had to guess. (laughs) Scientists? (laughs) Clothing specialists? Yeah. Want to weigh in? What's the right word for, oh, textile specialists? Ooh. Wouldn't it be textiles? Uh, Yeah, sorry. Yeah, textile. Textile, yes. Um, So as he was laying down on the ground that night he heard every little sound in the wilderness it just 
every little creaking tree. What's that? (laughs) Yeah. He ended up having to pull his naked little legs under his sweatshirt because he had no way of protecting himself from the elements. He also was really upset because he knew his father would be so worried about him, and he kept picturing his father looking for him on the mountain. Poor kid. And he was thinking about his mom. He seemed just so sweet, like such a sweet kid reading this book. But in any case, when he woke, it was still raining, and his pants were really stiff. So he just decided to go on without them. I mean, he brought them with, but he didn't put them back on. His shoes had shrunken after getting rained on. Oh, no. That's horrible. And they were extremely painful to put on, and he just couldn't do it. He had to keep going barefoot. And this is only after one night. Yeah, not so great. No. He found a stream and remembered from Boy Scouts to follow the stream. But it was an arduous and painful journey. At one point, he realized that he had lost his shoes, which I don't know if it would have mattered because they were so painful on his feet. But he had a gash on his right foot. His toenails on his left foot were all broken. He'd injured his ankle. Thankfully, that was the most minor of his injuries. Don had to continue on, even without his shoes. And he didn't beat himself up about it. He figured he didn't have to go far. He was just going to go slow. He was like, around the next corner, around the next corner. The, the camp is going to be right around yeah. the next. I'm going to find someone, right? You know what I mean? Um, so on day two, Don was met by black flies. Oh, like no. Swarms of them. Oh, no. This is Don's description. Quote, they're terrible around your forehead, under your hair, in your eyebrows, and in the corners of your eyes and in the corners of your mouth. And they get up your nose like dust and make mm. you sneeze and keep digging them out of your ears. End quote. Kind of makes you want to relocate to Maine, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Let's move. I mean, horse flies are bad enough. You ever get bitten by one of those? Oh, yeah. It hurts. Yeah. And they follow you. It's like they're smart. They know where the food is. Yeah. And you smell like, you smell like food, Tessa. You mean I, I'm like a tasty snack (laughs) (laughs) i guess so some people are tastier than others i gotta say um so he was all worn down he was all scraped up he didn't have proper clothing on and now he was being eaten by mosquitoes and black flies that are crawling up his nose and going into his ears great he found a strawberry patch and ate all of the strawberries and then he found a patch of moss to sleep on, but it wasn't exactly a comfortable moss patch. There were a bunch of rocks underneath it. And remember, he was sleeping without his jeans on because they were still wet. And the mosquitoes continued to eat Dawn as he attempted to sleep. And then he was awoken by more rain. But thankfully, he was able to find a hollow tree, and he slept in the tree f- for the night. Yeah, probably all this moisture is not helping the bug scenario. No. So in the morning, he went and got his jeans, and he headed back down to the stream. And over the course of the day, the water became more and more forceful. And he was carrying his jeans in his hands. At one point, Don realized he was going to have to chuck his jeans to the shore because he wasn't going to be able to traverse part of the river or stream or whatever it was. And he couldn't throw them hard enough to make it to the shore. And so they just got swallowed up by the stream until they were no longer visible. I mean... I guess in some ways, his jeans were about as good to him as his too small shoes. Shoes, because unless the weather changed dramatically enough to dry his pants sufficiently, yeah, he wouldn't be able to use them anyway. They weren't really helping. 
but I'm sure it was discouraging anyway. And I mentioned before, he just continued to think, right around the next corner, I'm going to see someone or find civilization. He stayed near the stream that day and found a sleeping spot, a mossy area under a tree. And as he fell asleep that night, he thought of milk. And I appreciated that Don mentioned in his book that he thinks that anyone who doesn't like milk is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Which I appreciate because that's the only thing that we drank when we were kids. Yeah, that's true. Hot, sweaty day, playing basketball, come in and have a glass of milk. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think people do that. That's not normal. (laughs) Maybe in the 30s and 40s. Oh, I just have to say one time I went on a hike with Coley, our brother and he brought milk he bought whole milk from the store and hiked with it like a jug of milk yeah he got a whole like a quart and then filled his water bottle up with it (laughs) (laughs) that's a little gross (laughs) and not just like any milk it was whole milk it's full of protein yeah you know if you're gonna go you're gonna go big i guess so so day four don woke up to a frenzy of insects, all in line to eat his blood. He realized it was time to get out of there. He found some more strawberries on a hillside near the water. Don was having to claw through bushes while eating and got his jacket caught on some brush, pulling holes in it and scraping him up even more. And right after that, he came face to face with a bear. Oh, the bear, the bear was standing on its hind legs and just roared at Don, and he just stood there, and he was completely in shock and didn't know what to do. And then the bear just jumped out of his way into the stream and that swam across the other side. That was it. Well, it's because he probably was so scrawny that the bear was like, there's no point in, in uh, taking this kid down. Yeah. I also feel like bear usually don't care about you unless they have a cub nearby or... You could come too close. There's usually a good reason. They don't attack willy-nilly. Sometimes. Usually. Usually. Usually they don't attack willy-nilly. His feet were in worse condition all the time, and walking was exquisitely painful. He cried and was just in so much pain. He prayed and prayed, and he rested. After this moment of pause, Don found a small road, making it easier to travel. But there was no sign of any kind of travel on the road. Mm -hmm. The road obviously hadn't been used in a long time. On day five, Don found himself in a swampy area. So you know what that means. More flies and mosquitoes. Did he end up with trench foot at the end of this? I don't know. I don't know. It seems like that wet environment with your feet being all beat up. Yeah, it wouldn't be too surprising. So on that day, he stayed on the road all day and eventually had to stop for sleep. He found a deserted cabin on the fifth day, but was unable to find any food. He did find a blanket, though. And when he went to pick it up off of this mattress it was on, there was this large mouse with big ears that seemed really upset that Don wanted the blanket. But he decided to take it anyway, even though it smelled terrible. Shortly after leaving the cabin, he found a place to lie down and sleep on his disgusting blanket. Hmm. (laughs) It was the best sleep he had had up until that point, and he woke up in the next morning, the next morning with a sunburn on the back of his legs. At least it was a little bit warmer and the insects were a little bit more at bay because there was a breeze. And then he saw something that made him a little bit more hopeful, which was a telephone wire nailed to some trees. And he decided to follow it certain, certain that he was going to be close to the camp if there was a telephone wire. That's pretty smart. 
the next day he actually heard the roar of an airplane, but he wasn't able to get to a spot where he was going to be seen. He felt pretty hopeless at that point. He was staggering around weakly until he just laid down on the ground. And when he woke up and looked around, sorry, when he woke up, he looked at his legs and he had this weird feeling that they weren't his. They were attached to his body, but they somehow were not his legs. They looked so bad. His head hurt. He could barely bend his legs. He was dizzy. Then he actually saw another bear, but he stayed really quiet and it lumbered by and didn't even see him. When it was gone, he was overcome with a feeling of loneliness. He found his way back to the road. And a little while later, there was a fork in the road. To the left was the telephone line and to the right was the stream. So he had to make a painstaking decision about whether or not to follow the phone line to find civilization or stay at his water source. He ultimately decided to stay with the water. Mm -hmm. So that day he ended up sleeping most of the day because he was so tired. He knew that he should find more food, but his hunger was totally gone, which is not a good sign. Ominous. He went to bed early that night and had a hard time getting up in the morning with fear that the next day would just be like the last. On day eight, he was able to get going and he went back to the water to continue his descent and he ended up slipping off of a rock into neck deep water and he floundered his way to sandbar across the stream and then realized that he had leeches all over his feet, which of course totally freaked him out. And yeah. he jumped back in the water and like pulled them all off of his legs. And that was like a really emotional struggle for him at that point. It probably wouldn't have been a big deal if it was on day one or two, you know, but it's already been over seven days without a proper meal. And, and he's been in the elements. Thing. And yeah. it's, yeah, another thing. It's like the straw that broke the camel's back kind of situation. He fell asleep on the sandbar, and when he woke up, he felt a little bit better. Then he picked his way over some rocks and got back to the bank, and that's when he saw a trail. He started running on the trail. He was probably super excited about the fact that there was some sign of yeah. man. Yeah, it was a trail. It was a trail. And he was running and running, and then he tripped out of the root of a tree and fell right on his face. But then he describes this supernatural experience where he felt like he was being picked up off the trail by hands and put back on his feet and that he was straightened up and he felt stronger after that which is interesting he walked by some old cabins and he realized they were old because the doors were hanging off of the hinges don finally stopped in one cabin thinking he could rest uninterrupted by bugs but then realized this wasn't going to happen anytime soon (laughs) They were going to follow him everywhere. You know what? His story reminds me a lot of Ricky McGee's story. Aside from the fact that he wasn't drinking out of puddles. Yeah. I mean, it would take being in Maine over being lost in the Australian bush. That's for sure. sure. Well, and he was lost for nine days and Ricky McGee was out there for 40 something days, right? Yeah. Crazy either way. Anyway, he ended up finding this gunny sack on the trail with a hole in it. And he wore it over his head to protect himself from bug bites. It had a hole. So he's looking through the hole. Wearing a bag over his head. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever works, okay? You have to be resourceful sometimes. You know, and then he's not getting sunburn on his face, probably. <laughs> yeah. So. so at some point as he's walking, he realizes that part of his toe is missing. He looks what? down and he's like, part of my toe is gone. And he had this bleeding gash and he had no pain and he had no idea what happened to it. Oh. Yeah. My guess is like you were mentioning before, you know, he's so waterlogged. All of his tissues probably just 
really uh, susceptible to injury, to put it nicely. Yeah, gross. He continued on and found another hollow tree and sat in it with his back inside the tree, his shirt over his legs, and his gunny sack over his head <laughs> after, his, after the toe incident. Imagine like, coming across this kid. Too much. That's why, that's why the bear didn't attack him. Yeah. I'm like, what's this monster? This kid. Don't want to mess with that kid. Yeah. Day nine. On this day, things were very bleak. Don, can't get, Don couldn't get up without spending a lot of time crying and praying. He would walk, stumble, and fall. And then it would just go on and on over and over. He crawled through some bushes and found some open water. On the other side of the open water was a cabin. And when he got close enough to the water to see, there were canoes sitting in the water on the other side. That's a good sign. Yeah. As he was thinking about the people that might be there, he was thinking that maybe they would give him donuts and bacon (laughs) and take him back to camp. That's what I want. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know you've been out for a long time when you're dreaming about bacon bacon all and i donut. want is some bacon and some sugar and the funny thing is now you can get bacon donuts you don't That's even true. have to eat them separately yeah what a magical time to be alive <laughs> so anyway he's daydreaming about these food items and a man came out of the woods on the other side and jumped into his canoe because he saw dawn and raced over to him, and he picked him up and put him in the canoe and paddled him back over to the cabin. That's one of those moments where I'm sure he felt like he was hallucinating. Do I really see a guy over there? Oh, yeah, probably. When you're out for that long and don't see another human being? I'm sure. So the couple that owned the cabin were Mr. and Mrs. McMorrin. The wife, Mrs. McMorrin, was likely what he needed in the moment. A mom, while he waited to be reunited with his actual mother, he said, quote, she took me in her arms and she was crying and saying things and she laid me down on a bed and began telling people what to do. I heard the telephone ringing like mad and then Mrs. McMorrin came over to me with a bowl of soup. I don't know what kind of soup it was, but it was good. Soon after that, he was able to speak to his mother on the phone. On the other side of the story was Henry and the man that had been standing to the right of the mountain. His name was Reverend Charles Austin. So back all the way at the beginning of the story. (laughs) I remember. I listen to you sometimes. He and Henry Coden started down the trail right away because the cloud conditions were worsening and shortly thereafter realized Don was lost. Mr. Fendler and Don's brother Tom, along with the Reverend and Henry, looked for Don the best they could when they realized he'd left the trail. Henry went all the way down to camp and alerted forest rangers. They organized a party of searchers on the mountain on Monday morning, July 17, 1939. I'm going to read directly from the book about the search efforts to give you a more clear picture of the efforts to find him and a little bit of the aftermath. There was no specification as to who these words came from. Okay. But it was published in the Revere, Massachusetts Journal on July 27, 1939. Monday morning, July 17th, the party I was with started to climb the Mount Katahdin lofty summit. I had climbed many of the peaks in New Hampshire, including Mount Washington, both day and night, so I regarded this ascent as just another climb. Before I had reached the summit, I was fully convinced that Mount Katahdin's ruggedness had been grossly understated and that I was climbing the toughest mountain east of the Rockies. 
I arrived back to the base camp in mid-afternoon and promptly fell asleep. About 7.30 that evening, I strolled over to the ranger's tent to inquire about the other trails that ascend the mountain, their location, length, and so forth. We had talked scarcely 10 minutes when a young boy, in the most exhausted condition I have ever seen, came running down the trail. It was some minutes before he could speak to tell us that a 12-year-old boy was lost on the tableland, a 40-acre plateau high on the mountainside. Within 15 minutes, the ranger and I, along with four others, were winding our way up the six-mile-long trail. A short way up, we met the lost boy's father, who supplied us with more detailed information. He said that he, with his two sons and another small boy, had started to climb the summit of the mile-high peak. The youngsters raced ahead, and Don, the missing youth, had turned to go back to his father, but had lost the trail. With cheery assurances that we would return with the boy in a few hours, the searching party continued on up. Darkness fell upon us shortly before we reached the tree line, where we found two fellows camping for the night. Here we paused for a brief rest. Far below in the blackness of light burned, the only sign of human habitation in the vast wilderness, and also the signal that the boy had not been found. Two lights would have called us back. One light spurred us on. Above us, shrouded in heavy wet clouds, lay the tableland, and still above that rose the peak. We started again. From here on, the climbing became, became increasingly difficult. Irons driven into stone provided us with hand and footholds to assist us over otherwise unscalable, unscalable boulders. The clouds enveloped us in a penetrating dampness. The wind increased. A light rain fell and the rocks became slippery, thus slowing our pace. The sides became steeper, and it seemed to fall away on each side to the mist-filled bottomless pits. I shuddered to think of the little lad's possible fate. We reached the gateway, the beginning of the tableland before 10 o'clock. To reach this point in daylight, the average climbing time is two and a half hours. We made it in pitch darkness in less than two hours. Here we split into parties of two and spread out, fan-like, over the broad tableland, we flashed our lights in the scrub under huge boulders over rocky crags and between great slits in the rock, calling out for the little fellow constantly and straining against the wind to hear a feeble cry that never came. In all my life, I've never been in a more desolate place. The wind was blowing 40 miles an hour. The temperature hovered around 40 degrees, although I could swear it was less. My hands had grown numb from the cold, and I swapped my flashlight from one hand to the other. Rain and sweat ran down my face. My shoes, stockings, and pants were covered with mud from searching through rain-drenched grass and bush. My feet began to ache. My legs ached. My back, my knees, I ached all over. My heart set up a terrific pounding in my ears. I was wretched. I thought of the Indians and their god of evil, Pamola. Surely Pamola reigned on his lofty throne that night. With lights that stabbed the fog in the darkness a mere twenty feet, we worked our way along the rim of the tableland to the edge of the saddle trail. How the ranger, Dick Holmes, knew the way in the sea of blackness, I shall never know. We went down over the edge. The trail was made up of small stones, sharp and jagged, and offered insecure footing. We slid and fell too many times to relate. It was after midnight when we finally reached another ranger cabin on the other side of the mountain. To our disappointment, there was only one occupant in the place, who promptly arose and gave us hot coffee and food. The young fellow, sleeping there, quickly dressed, and he and the ranger started back up the mountain within 15 minutes, each carrying packs of supplies for those still searching on top. 
Before leaving, they instructed me to listen carefully, as long as I could keep awake, and also caution me how to handle the boy should he be out of his mind and put up a struggle when I approached him. I maintained my vigil until drowsiness overtook me. Early the next morning, Mr. Fendler, who'd spent most of the night searching frantically with a small group on the top of the mountain, got in touch with every agency possible to get a large group of searchers underway. The Forest Service and all its branches throughout the Katahdin District were notified. The Great Northern Paper Company, which operates large timber crews throughout this section of Maine, sent about 20 cruisers from the Greenville Station, and men were sent in from Island Falls as well. These cruisers are expert woodsmen who know this section of Maine from long experience. Chief of Police Alan Picard of neighboring Millinocket and Mrs. Bernice Buck of the Board of Selectmen of the same town spread the news rapidly. Within a few hours, there were hundreds of people on the mountain. Men even left their jobs at the paper mill in Millinocket to join the hunt for the missing boy. The Maine State Police had two bloodhounds, which were immediately rushed to the plateau and which picked up the scent of the lost boy. The bloodhounds led the searchers to the saddle spring where the trail was lost. It was the general consensus among the, among the searchers that Don had left the plateau and had fallen down somewhere between the big boulders which surrounded the plateau on all sides. The two bloodhounds were not accustomed to the rough terrain, and their feet were soon torn and cut to such an extent they had to be taken back. Aww. Many people thought that the bloodhounds would have found Dawn if their feet had not been so cruelly torn by all the jagged boulders over which they ran. A phone call was made to the New York State asking for more dogs. Two were rushed by plane and arrived at Katahdin on Wednesday morning. As a precaution, leather shoes were strapped on their feet to save them from the torture suffered by the other dogs. Inasmuch as the National Guard could not be called out without government explicit... Sorry... Inasmuch as the National Guard could not be called out without the governor's explicit command, communications were established with the Governor Barrow's office. He was in California at the time, and it was not until 4 o'clock Wednesday morning that he was finally reached. The order was rushed through, and 65 National Guardsmen joined the search. With such a large force on the mountain, provision had to be made for feeding the searchers. A National Guard field kitchen was set up from Bangor, the state forestry plane was pressed to service and for two days flew over the mountain and surrounding country. This proved to be merely a gesture, however, because from the height the plane had to travel, the boy could not have been seen. During the first five days of the search, from Tuesday to Saturday, no attempt was made by the searchers to look below the timber line. It was felt by all the veteran woodsmen and guides that Don could not have possibly gone down to the Bear Mountain that first treacherous night. In fact, it was generally believed that the boy had perished. The hunters then were searching only for his body. The crevices between some of the boulders were 30 to 50 feet deep, and the searchers traveling about 12 feet apart looked into every possible hole where the boy could have fallen. It was not until late Saturday that Mr. Fenler, who had a strong feeling that Don had reached the timber line, and was still alive, was able to convince the searchers that he possibly was lost in the wooded section somewhere below the timberline. Sunday, the army of searchers, numbered between four and five hundred individuals, began to give up the search, and only a faint hope was held out for the boy's rescue. Mr. Fenler never gave up hope, however, even though no encouraging clues had been found since the bloodhounds lost Don's trail on the plateau. Well, and probably part of the reason they did is because of how wet everything was. True. And it rained, and I'm sure a lot of those scents were washed out. 
I'm sure. I'm sure you're right. As soon as Don was safe in the McMorrin cabin, Mr. McMorrin notified the telephone operator that the boy had been found and the good news was rapidly spread. The next morning, Don was carried down to the shore of the river. He ended up continuing down to Little Main Village where an ambulance waited to take Don and his mother to Bangor. Mr. Fenler was confined at the Eastern Maine General Hospital with a serious eye injury sustained in the course of the long hunt. Yikes. And it was there in the hospital room that a reunion of the entire family took place. Meanwhile, throughout the nine days that the boy was lost, millions of people followed the fruitless progress of the search in the press of the country. Although the searchers themselves had given up all thought of finding the boy alive, Thousands of mothers throughout America still hope for his safe return. Their spirit and their hope is perhaps best described in the concluding paragraph of an editorial appearing in the Boston Transcript of July 27, 1939. Quote, But after the searchers had turned back, and after the press had pronounced his return hopeless, thousands of mothers in America did not give up hope. They scanned the papers daily for a word, they watched their own sons a bit more closely. There was a stout trail of hope being blazed for this boy. And if there was such amazing strength of survival in Dawn, we wonder if it was not in large measure due to the powerful sending and receiving apparatus of mother to son and son to mother. For at no time in human life will men find greater courage in their hearts and in their weary bodies than when in youth like Dawn they are returning home. Don credited his survival and his will to live to his faith in God and teaching from the scouts. He started on his journey at 74 pounds and was recovered at 58. When he came home, he was treated like a hero. The town had a parade. He was featured in Life magazine and received a medal from the governor of Maine, who called him the, quote, most courageous boy in America. He was honored by Roosevelt. He told Roosevelt that he would enlist, if he could, right then and there. And did he? <laughs> he wasn't old enough to, but he enlisted in the Navy and served in the Pacific in World War II. Then he joined Army Special Forces serving in Vietnam. Don spent his time in adulthood visiting many schools to speak to readers of his book about his journey and days away from civilization. He spent his retirement in Tennessee and Maine. Don wrote to every person that wrote to him. He gave them tips for the outdoors, like this one. If you go hiking, carry food and water, a first aid kit, and a whistle. If you get separated, it will really help. Don died in 2016 at the ripe old age of 90. Good job, Don. He just seems like the sweetest person ever. I know. That was a nice story. Yeah, I really love the bit about the mothers and the sons. That was really sweet. Are you going to watch your sons more closely now in the woods? <laughs> you got to watch them like a hawk all the yeah. time, 100%. Yeah. Never, <laughs> never stop paying attention. Uh, thanks so much, you guys, for joining us for this week's episode of the Crocs True Survival Stories. And hopefully you can join us again next week. And also, if you have a moment to send an email or a suggestion to thecruxsurvival at gmail.com, then write us. Yeah, please. Send us your suggestions or if you just want to say hi. All of the above. We appreciate you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Yeah. Have a great week, you guys. Yeah. Stay alive until the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.